And in this evening in our study of this 11th chapter, we come to the end of the interlude between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments. Now, we've been studying the uh, events of the seventh seal on Redemption Scroll. And this scroll is the title deed to the earth. It tells us how that Christ will come to redeem this world from the curse that has enslaved men for so long under the power of Satan. Uh, Since man fell in the Garden of Eden, the whole human race has been under the curse. Every person has received a sinful nature from Adam. And since the fall, Satan has usurped the authority of God so that now he is known as the God of this world. But Satan's power is only a temporary power because he's limited by God and he reigns only as long as God permits. And when God decides that he's going to put an end to Satan's evil kingdom, then Satan will have no power to resist. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ in his role as king and judge. And Revelation depicts how that Christ will come back as the mighty avenger of his people. And when he does come back, he comes with compassion on those that are his own, and he'll take them home to be in heaven. But he also comes with vengeance and with a plan to redeem the world from the curse of sin. Now, Redemption Scroll is about that plan that God will enact to make all of that happen. Seven seals are on Redemption Scroll, and as each one of them is broken, uh, there are many things that come to pass, many judgments that come upon the earth, and all of that takes place as Christ goes about to establish his kingdom of righteousness upon this earth. So here we are in this seventh seal, and the seventh seal is broken down to many different parts. Uh, Among them are seven trumpet judgments that are sounded by seven mighty angels. And from the 10th chapter all the way down to verse number 15 in chapter 11, there are events recorded that take place between the sounding of the 6th and the 7th trumpet judgments. Now, chapter 11 is a highly unusual part of a very unusual book. And I guess we would put it that way. It's unusual among many unusual happenings because here we have this very strange story of two mighty witnesses that are raised up to preach during the time of the Great Tribulation. And they come to preach in the city of Jerusalem. This is at the very worst part of the Tribulation. It's at the time when the Antichrist, you might say, is at the full bloom of his evil. God rears up these two potent preachers to declare judgments of Christ. So for three and a half years, they thunder out against the wickedness of man, and in particular, the policies of Satan's mouthpiece, who is this vile Antichrist. He's a man who has the character of hell. And when we get into chapter 12, a little bit later on, we're going to get into an in-depth study of the Antichrist and what he's all about. But he does have the character of hell. He has unprecedented power and political savvy. But his power is also limited by God. And until God is through with these two witnesses that he sends, the Antichrist is powerless against them. Now, tonight we're going to conclude their story. Uh, Their death, the death of these two men, has as much miraculous character as their lives. So we're going to look at these scriptures in chapter 11. We've read this three times already, so we're not going to read the entire part of it again. But we're going to take up in verse number 7 that start, begins to deal with the death of these two witnesses. So if you'll stand with me as we read God's word, we'll read uh, verse 7 down through verse number 14 in chapter 11. 
And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. They of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, come to you now. We thank you for those who are here to hear the Word of God preached tonight. Lord, open this text before us. Help us to understand something here about your wonderful plan that you have to redeem the world finally from the curse that's been placed upon it. Bless in this uh, message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Usually when we have these multi-part sermons that it takes a little bit of time to try to catch everybody up on exactly where we are in the different parts of the sermon. So I'm, I'm just going to be very brief tonight as we go back and talk about the first three parts of this that we've already talked about. We first talked about the description of these witnesses. Now, the Scriptures do call them witnesses. They are preachers of the gospel, but they're in a different time. They're preaching in a different time, which means that they're preaching under a different dispensation. The time that we're talking about here is a time of God's vengeance and not really speaking about a day of God's grace. This is actually a time of judgment. And so the focus is no longer upon the grace of God, but the way in which he will judge this world. Now, one of the marvelous attributes of God is that he is a God of grace. God is never devoid of grace, even though sometimes he may decide to veil his grace for a while. But even in this time of judgment, we do see that God is still a God of grace, and he bestows grace upon sinners because he does allow some people to repent. Now, the majority of the world will not repent when they hear the message of Christ given, but there are some that God does grant repentance unto repentance to, and and so there may be great numbers of Jews and Gentiles that will come to the Lord, and perhaps even the witness of these two men will be responsible, especially for bringing a great number of Jews to the knowledge of Christ. But for three and a half years, these men preach, and they show signs and wonders, but when God's appointed time is through, he relaxes his hand of protection upon them, and then these two preachers become martyrs for the cause of Christ. And so they go the way of many Old Testament prophets and many that are in the New Testament as well, many preachers who finally eventually give up their lives for the cause of Christ. The next thing that we talked about was their demonstration. And their demonstration is the ability to perform Old Testament types of miracles. 
Uh, They have fire and plagues that they bring upon the people, and that substantiates their calling. That says that these are men who are actually come from God because they have these special supernatural abilities, and they're able to do these wonders. And the types of wonders that they do give rise to speculation that these might indeed be two men that we've seen on this world before. Uh, Perhaps there are two old prophets that come out of the New Testament, and because of fire and plagues that they're able to bring, there are many people who say that they very possibly could be Elijah and Moses. And then there are others who say that, well, no, maybe they're Elijah and Enoch, because those were two prophets of God that lived on the earth, but they didn't die. And so God is going to send them back, and they'll have to go through death as all men do. And so perhaps we're talking about Enoch and Elijah. But whoever they may be, God's hand is upon them for the time appointed. No one is able to harm them as they preach day after day, declaring the wrath of God and and, uh, God's judgment on wicked sinners. And we notice here that uh, as we read this story through the book of Revelation, that people are very much hardened against the gospel of Christ, much, much more so than we see in our day. And so there's only one thing that people really desire in relation to these two witnesses, and that is that they are put to death. And even though there is no one who can deny that they are actually two men who have come from God, yet that's what people seek. God's power rests upon them, but they don't care about that. They want nothing more than to see them dead. So that led us into the third part of the, of the sermon, and that's their destruction. Verse number 7 says that the beast from the bottomless pit ascends to make war against them, and finally he's able to overcome them and to kill them. Now that phrase, the beast out of the bottomless pit, is a reference to the character of the Antichrist. He is of his father, the devil. He's an evil person. He's a great deceiver, just like the devil. And when God takes his hand off of these witnesses, then the beast finally does overcome them, and he does kill them. And what that does, it provokes a celebration all across the world, uh, a celebration like the world has never seen before. All across this world, the images of their dead bodies will be beamed by satellites. News stations will pick up the story. Talk shows are going to be filled with discussion about it. And they'll also be talking about how wonderful that the Antichrist is because he is able to overcome the tormentors. And I can even see Oprah right now giving away more cars in celebration because the two witnesses are dead. And the Bible says that they give gifts to one another, so it's going to be just like Christmas. And there are some who have turned it anti-Christmas because this is just another celebration of the Antichrist. And then the Scriptures tell us also that the contempt for these men is so great that they aren't even allowed the decency of a burial. People desecrate their dead bodies. And so for three and a half days after they're killed, they leave those dead bodies out in the streets. They're out there just like roadkill. Only the highway department doesn't come and make any effort to clean them up. But they just leave them out there and they torment them. They, they taunt them, their dead bodies. They keep hoisting glasses and toasts to one another because they're dead. They're kissing each other underneath the mistletoe and showering each other with gifts. Then, there's something that happens, something that's very extraordinary, something nobody's ever seen before so that nobody can believe it. Now, look at verse numbers 11 and 12. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, 
And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So we've seen their description, their demonstration, their destruction. And now fourthly, we come to their departure. These two men receive life from the Spirit of God. And the Bible says that they stand up on their feet. Now, for three and a half days, they were dead. For three and a half days, they laid there lifeless. They had no power in them. They were taunted. Uh, People came up and kicked their dead bodies. Three and a half days, they lie there motionless. They endure the ridicule of the Antichrist and all of these evil people of the world. But then after three days, God's power comes upon them, and the Bible says they stand up alive. Now, we notice some things that are very peculiar and different from anything that we've ever seen in the Scripture before. Now, first, we're looking at their visible resurrection from the dead. Now, people look at this, and they're awed. They are simply amazed. Now, during the tribulation time, death is a constant companion to every person upon the planet. People are going to be more acquainted with death in that time than ever before. You know, when I was growing up, uh, I was used to seeing death, Uh, My dad was a pastor, and he was often called on to do funerals. And so when I was young, I would accompany him many times to go to the death or to the bedsides of many dying people. And when the funerals were preached, I was at those funerals. And I would venture to say that I've probably been to far more funerals than anybody in this room. And that's really not a record that I want to hold. But I, I would say that I've probably been to more than anybody here. And I was somewhat surprised that uh, when I came here to this church that I found out that there were some people who had never been to a funeral. And so I would get questions sometimes. People would call me and they would say, should I take my children to a funeral? And I thought that was kind of peculiar because I'd been to so many. But in the time of tribulation, funerals are going to be almost an hourly occurrence. We're talking here about a time when billions of people die during the judgments that God brings upon the earth. And so I don't believe that there's any family in the entire world that somehow has not been affected or touched by death. And in all of those deaths, there was nobody who was holding out hope that any of those dead bodies would arise from the dead, that anybody was going to get up and walk again. And so they keep putting people in tombs or possibly in mass graves because there are so many But with all the billions of deaths that come, there is not one of them where anyone ever got back up. And so you can imagine the shock of these people as they see these witnesses get up after being dead for three and a half days. And so fear comes upon them. They're just shocked by it. And I think probably most of the fear is due to they're afraid of what they're going to do now. I mean, they've been tormenting the people for three and a half years. They brought all these plagues and all the things that they've done. And so people are probably thinking, well, it's going to be worse now. They are so mad at us because we killed them. No telling what they're going to do now. So people are just amazed at this resurrection. But they really shouldn't be shocked. Because if they'd been listening to what these two witnesses said, they would realize that there had been many resurrections. They could go into the Bible and they could see that There are many resurrections from the dead. One of these witnesses, we said, could be Elijah. And we read his story in the Old Testament, and he raised a widow's son from the dead. There are many New Testament resurrections. At the time that 
uh, Jesus was crucified and uh, then arose from the grave himself. There were many people who came out of the graves at the same time. You know, there are many people who don't realize that. They overlook that part of the story. But when Jesus came out of the grave, there were also many saints of God who came out of the graves at the same time. In Matthew chapter 27, it says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. So resurrections have happened. And they really shouldn't be so hard for people to believe. Many of them have happened before. So what then makes this resurrection so peculiar and so different from any of the others? Well, I think it's the fact that this is visible. Right before their eyes, these two men get up. And this is done in the presence of their enemies. And what we don't read about in the Bible is any resurrections that take place where the enemies of God or actually have the opportunity to see that right in front of their eyes. Now here, we have television cameras that are trained on these bodies, and celebrations are going on. Scarcely a moment, those two dead bodies don't have somebody looking directly at them, and then all of a sudden, they stand up. And no enemies of God have been able to see something like this right in front of their eyes. In fact, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that God has ever raised the dead in order to put down enemies And when Jesus was crucified and put into the tomb, his body was there for three days. And then after those three days, very early on a Sunday morning, in the secrecy of the tomb, Jesus came back to life. The Spirit re-entered into that body and he came out of the tomb, but there was nobody who saw it. Now they saw the evidence of it, but there's nobody who saw what happened in that tomb with their own eyes. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus didn't take people into the tomb to watch what happened there. Lazarus was called out of the grave. Jesus told him to come forth, but nobody saw what happened in that very secret moment when life came into his body again. The enemies of God certainly were not able to see that. And then another remarkable thing about resurrections is about the one that takes place when uh, Jesus comes back and he calls his people home. We don't have any indication in the Scripture that there is any living person, at least those that aren't the children of God, who will be able to see the dead bodies when Jesus comes back, to see all of those dead bodies come out of those tombs and then meet the Lord in the air and then go on into heaven. And the Bible doesn't tell us that there is any living Christian who will be translated and that that will be seen by any living person upon the earth. Now, it happens so quickly that the Bible says things like this. It says, two will be working in the field, and all of a sudden one is there, and the other one is gone, immediately gone. It says that there will be two people sleeping in a bed, and secretly and quietly, without even the other person realizing it, that person's gone, and he's gone to be with the Lord. Nobody sees that. It happens, as the Word of God says, in the twinkling of an eye. And that is so fast that... No one could behold it, truly absent from this life and then immediately in the presence of the Lord. And then also we have no indication in Scripture that anybody is going to hear that trumpet sound except the ones that are going to be called up to be with God. So I don't think there's any lost person who's going to hear the trumpet of God when it sounds. 
The world is going to be mystified and terrified because all of a sudden all these Christians are no longer here. Where did they go? What happened to them? And nobody's going to be able to see anything that takes place. Now, everybody's seen those bumper stickers that say, you know, in case of rapture, this car is going to be unmanned. And that happens with planes, trains, and automobiles. It's going to be all over the world. So these two witnesses then have a very unusual resurrection. It's visible. It's done right out in the open. Now, secondly, this is a verifiable resurrection. They're verifiable resurrection from the dead. It's visible and purposely, I believe, to have this profound effect on those who see it happen. And so the resurrection is unquestionably verifiable. Now, one of the stunning aspects of the death of these witnesses is the proof of their death, all the people who see it. Now, most of you know that before the resurrection of Christ, there was a lot of false information that was put out to counter the claims of a resurrection. And I've always found this to be intriguing, that when the Jews had seen so many miracles of Christ, that I think that they were really anticipating that he just might come out of that grave. And we know that he promised that he would, and so in anticipation of that, I think that the Jews thought that they would keep him in the tomb. They would seal the tomb up. They would put those guards there. And if Jesus did arise, there was no way that he could get out. And so they went to Pilate with these words. They said, let someone come and steal the body and say that he arose from the grave. I just kind of think that they were expecting it. And that's just what they put in the ear of Pilate. But listen to what happened when the Jewish council found out that Jesus arose from the dead. Did they believe in him? Well, they didn't believe, they didn't repent or trust him, but here's what happened. News started to spread about the resurrection, and so some went to the Jewish council to tell them what had happened. And in Matthew chapter 28, it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. Now, the false seeds of information had already been put out there ahead of time. But again, I'm not so sure that just deep down in their hearts, they had the fear that Jesus would do exactly what he said that he would do. And we also know that there have been many theories advanced about Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Today, there are still some people who don't believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. They think that he fainted, he appeared to be dead, and so they took him down from the cross, they put him into the confines of the tomb, and there in that cold, dark tomb, he suddenly revived and then came out. Well, there's some problems with that, isn't there? They've got to figure out how that Christ wiggled out of those grave clothes that had been wrapped so tightly around him. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had wrapped the body with up to 100 pounds of ointments and spices and wound that body up with linen strips. And so you have to wonder, why is it that when they went to check out the tomb that they didn't find all of these linen strips strewn all over the tomb from one end to the other as Jesus fought and clawed his way to try to get out of them? Why, Why didn't they find that? But instead, when the disciples came back to the tomb, they found out that the grave clothes were lying neatly there, just like they were as if they'd been wrapped around a body. The grave clothes were depressed, just like a body came out of them. So what happened? 
Jesus arose from the dead. And then people have to figure out, well, how is it then that in that weakened condition after being crucified, that somehow he rolled the stone away from the inside and overpowered Roman soldiers that were on the outside? How are they going to figure out what happened there? And so you look at that and you think, well, there is not any half-brained person, any thinking person who would not believe that there was a resurrection. But here is something a little bit different when we talk about these witnesses because there is no speculation here. There's nobody who's going to say, well, these fellows aren't really dead because they, in fact, did die. They laid out there in the streets for three and a half days. Their bodies are lying in the hot, blazing sun. There are millions of witnesses all over the world that have seen what have happened, and they also see the moment of that resurrection. Now, the death of these witnesses was broadcast, uh, I think, all over the world. And the Antichrist must have used some kind of spectacular means to overcome them because I don't think it was as simple as him walking up to them and shooting them in the head with a 9 millimeter pistol. They probably tried all of those things, so no telling what method they used to get rid of them. And the whole world sees what happens. And so there's no doubt about it. They're dead. And then with the entire world that's watching, with no doubt they come back to life. And so with death reigning from one world, uh, one end of the world to the other, no one had ever seen dead bodies come back to life. But here it happens. Their death was sure. The resurrection is even surer. It's visible. It's verifiable. And the whole world sees it. Verse 12 says that they went up and their enemies beheld them. Now, thirdly, we notice their victorious resurrection from the dead. The last part of verse 12 says, And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. Now, there's something definitive about the cloud that we really can't see in the English. Uh, In the original language, it's very emphatic about this cloud. W.A. Criswell writes that the cloud is the designated vehicle of God. It's as if God sends down something like a golden chariot and escorts these two men from the earth and receives them into heaven. Now, if that's the case, then we can uh, certainly say that they rise victoriously. They're not leaving the earth sheepishly and limping into heaven. It's visible, it's verifiable, it's a victorious resurrection, and it simply leaves people in utter awe and, uh, and, and fear about what happens. And neither can we say that they go without a whimper because verse number 13 says that there's a great earthquake that comes. So it's almost as if they say as they're going up, Take that, you heathens! And then one-tenth of the city is destroyed. 7,000 more people die. An earthquake comes. A tenth of the city is destroyed. Those people die. And all of it's related to the activities of these two potent preachers. It sort of reminds me of Samson when they put his eyes out. Uh, Samson, in the last act of vengeance, uh, brought the house down with the final performance, didn't he? He showed him who the strong man was. But there's a question, though, that comes up at this point as to why these witnesses didn't actually say anything. I mean, I'm the one who added that, take that, you heathens. That's my line. That's not in the Scriptures. Uh, They didn't actually say anything at all. And so we wonder, well, why didn't they say something? I mean, why didn't they just turn loose right here and just start preaching another hellfire and brimstone sermon on the way up? Isn't that going to convince people that they need to believe and come to Christ? Well, actually, it wouldn't. The resurrection of Christ didn't cause the Jewish leaders to believe. The resurrection of Lazarus didn't call, cause Jewish believers, uh, leaders to believe. And you remember that story, the rich man and Lazarus? 
when uh, the rich man died and he went to hell and Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham, uh, the rich man lifted up his eyes and he saw Lazarus and Abraham and he said, Now, Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus back from the dead and have him go and preach to my brothers and warn them about this awful place of torment? And Abraham said to the rich man, he said, No. He said, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they won't hear them, then neither will they believe, though one rose from the dead. You know what that tells us? It tells us that people do not believe because of miracles. Miracles don't cause people to believe. They didn't cause people to believe in Christ and all the miracles that he did, all the miracles that these witnesses do. That didn't cause people to believe in Christ. People aren't saved by miracles. People are saved when the Holy Spirit speaks to the heart. People are saved when the Holy Spirit takes the blindness and the hardness away from the heart. And it's not until the Spirit changes the will of man that anyone will ever receive Christ. And that tells you just how foolish it is when preachers get up and they say, now this is all up to you. You need to make a decision out of the good sense that you have Weigh the two sides of this, and out of your powers of reason, you decide what you should do. Should you believe or not believe? Friend, you can't believe. Not until the Holy Spirit quickens you from death to life can you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ. If seeing miracles doesn't do it for these people, then what makes you think that it would do it for you? You've never seen a miracle like this. You've never seen anybody raised from the dead like these people do. So what do you think would make you believe when they won't believe? So we have a dilemma here then when we come to the end of verse number 13. And just as there's controversy in the beginning and the end and the middle of this uh, this chapter, there's also controversy in the end of it. What does the scripture mean when it says, And the remnant were affrighted, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Does that mean that all of these people that are in the city that weren't killed in that earthquake that suddenly they turned to Christ and they're saved? Well, some people believe that is what happens, and they say that this is a genuine conversion. Here are thousands of people that turned to Christ because of what's happened with these witnesses. Well, I wonder, why not the whole world? I mean, the whole world sees what happens. They, they see the men killed. They see them rise from the dead. And so why doesn't the whole world believe? And yet we find that all of the people still follow the Antichrist. They're lockstep with him, and they go with him all the way as far almost as the Battle of Armageddon. So what does this mean then? What does it mean when it says the people gave God the glory? Are these people that are truly converted? I don't think so. Well, verse 14 doesn't say anything about God letting up because there are thousands of converts. It says immediately afterwards, and the third woe cometh quickly. Nothing substantial seems to have happened here concerning salvation. Now, I believe what we have here is a response of the people, not a salvational response, but an unwilling admission that this has to be the power of God. There's no way that they can deny it. They they have to see that God is running the show here. It's visible, it's verifiable, it's victorious. And so whatever it is that the Antichrist does, it's obvious that he's on God's short leash. So what is taking place here? Well, I think it's more like what we read in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as you read that passage, does this mean that every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and they give the glory to God because all of them are saved? Well, certainly not. It says things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And under the earth has reference to the demonic powers of hell. It also has reference to those who are already in hell suffering torment because of their sins. So does this mean that, oh, they give glory to God, now they're saved? What does it mean that at all? These are people that are forced to give glory to God. They, they must admit the lordship of Christ because they don't have any power against him. And I believe that's what we see in Revelation eleven thirteen. They glorify God in the sense only that they can speak no rational words against him. And so they have to admit all of this is done by the power of Almighty God. Well, the story of the witnesses ends right there. And verse number 14 says, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now, we need to go back to chapter 8, verse number 13, to tie this together. And in that verse it says, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. There are three woes that are pronounced. And every time that you see the word woe in the scripture, almost always a judgment comes after it. There's a pronouncement of judgment. So there are three woes that are going to be pronounced according to Revelation chapter 8, 13, and those three woes have special reference to the last three trumpet judgments. Now, if you remember, trumpet number five was when that terrible judgment came of the bottomless pit was opened, and out of it came those hordes of stinging, locust-like demons. The second woe, was when the sixth trumpet sounded. And then there was an army of 200 million strong fire-breathing angels that came, and they destroyed one-third of the earth's population. Now, curiously, as we look at those two woes, people didn't repent. They didn't turn to the Lord. Even torture wasn't going to make them repent. Why? Same reason. Because where the Holy Spirit is not working, there is no repentance. So we come then to... Verse 14 in chapter 11, it says, Two woes are past, and there comes a third one. The third woe is the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And trust me, folks, things are really going to get ugly. With all haste and rapid-fire succession, earth's final judgments come, and then the millennial reign of Christ is ushered in. Now, in two weeks, the seventh angel is going to sound. I mean two weeks in time of our study, so don't get worried. Uh, It's two weeks in time of our study. The second angel, or that seventh angel is going to sound, so don't panic about that. So we're going to come back in two weeks. Brother Castro will be here next week to preach to us, and then we'll take up trumpet number seven on the seventh seal of Redemption Scroll. And this next part, we're, we're, as we finish verse 14, we're at the midway point of the book of Revelation, and the next half is when things really get good. It really gets interesting, I think. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend together tonight talking about your word. And as we say so often in the end of these sermons, we are so thankful that as the people of God, 
that we will not have to face the things that we're talking about here. Every Christian who is here tonight, knowing Christ as Savior, will be taken home to be with you before these things take place. And when we come back, we come back with the Lord Jesus Christ reigning victorious upon this earth. And we thank you, Lord, that you've saved our souls and made that possible for us. Pray, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would read these things throughout the book of Revelation. They are warned. These things will happen. There is no doubt about them. It's written in your word. And I just pray, Lord, you'd move them towards faith in Jesus Christ. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.